Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast brought to you by the Trainees and Members Committee. My name is Dr Jonathan Bargett and I am a medical registrar in acute and general internal medicine based in South East Scotland and today I am delighted to be joined today by Dr Martin Wilson. He is a consultant in medicine for the elderly and general internal medicine based in NHS Highland in Raybourne Hospital. Welcome Dr Wilson. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's fantastic to have you here today. And really, I'd like to start off by asking you mainly to explain on this podcast today, why are we talking about frailty and polypharmacy? And why is it so important? So I think probably why we're talking about both is that they're both enormous subjects. So frailty is a podcast in itself and polypharmacy is a podcast in itself. And I think maybe to narrow it down a wee bit, what we'll do is we'll look at polypharmacy as it applies to frail adults. So polypharmacy being on too many medications, and we'll talk a wee bit about how we define that as applied to the frail adult. So that's the adult who lacks physiological reserve. And again, just to keep it a wee bit simpler for this podcast, we'll just say that it's age-related frailty. There's a lot of discussion about, and we're all familiar in our day-to-day practice, that people can be frail at relatively young ages due to physiological deficits, but we'll just try and go through to frailty due to age. There's a lot of it about. And um, certainly, even if you're not a particular specialist, is something you're going to meet quite a lot. Well, certainly, Dr Wilson, um, whenever I first worked with you as a as an FY1 in NHS Highland, um, you introduced me to the the importance of um, assessing frailty and um, how we can assess our patients and help in their management. So I guess just from a basic level, how would you define frailty and age-related frailty? So the definition I like to go with is the Rotewood one, which is a reduced ability to put up with a physiological insult without functional decline. And the example I tend to use is um, your urinary tract infection. So if Jonathan or I, or most people listening to this, get a simple lower urinary tract infection, then we may get a day off work at best. And we won't feel very well, but it's not dreadful. And we'll pretty much be able to function, although not having the best day that we have. Whereas if a frail adult gets a similar sized insult, exactly the same infection, exactly the same severity, their lack of physiological reserve will be enough to drastically destroy their function so that they are unable to do important functions of daily living. So toileting, eating, drinking, getting about. That for me is the core concept. It's how big an insult it takes to knock you off. And if it's a small insult, you're frail. And I guess that's a really useful way just to start this conversation, uh, Dr. Wilson. In current climate, it's more important than ever to really be thinking about the clinical frailty score. And I was just wondering if we could briefly talk about that. So as you're probably hearing, I'm not a massive fan of scores for things because I sometimes think they miss things. But I do like that clinical frailty score that's being used at the moment, the Rokewood one. And there's several reasons for that. I think partly because there's so many different gaps on it. So if we just take it, if we just take it through for a wee second and, you you know, so it's, it goes from one to nine. So one is very fit. And that's your older adult who's at the top end. They're the ones that tend to appear on the BBC website and the telly having climbed Everest and up and down Monroe's. And don't know those sort of things. The sort of elite level older adult who's much fitter than I am. And there's very few of those about. And then at the other end, at number nine is terminally ill. So that's people who are visibly dying in front of you and are going to die in the relatively near future. And we're quite good at identifying both of those things. But the frailty score, I think, helped with a lot of the grey area in between. It also helped get away from the idea that it's digital. People are not either frail or non-frail. People who are not frail on this score can be counted as vulnerable. So stage four is vulnerable. So that's somebody who's not dependent, 
but have symptoms limit activity. They commonly feel slowed up or tired. And that's a good thing to identify because that's somebody who's clearly more vulnerable than your very fit Monroe bagging mountaineer. And then it goes through the frailty categories and it goes from mild, moderately severe and very severely frail, which gets benchmarked against how much help that person needs. And again, this this idea that there's a process going on here, there's a journey that people go on from frailty to more frailty. So the interesting bits are not necessarily the people at either end. So if you've got your very fit Monroe bagging older adult who's clearly not feeling very fit, then that, then it's relatively straightforward what you do with them. Decisions there tend not to be that difficult. Sometimes it can be a bit distracting due to their age, but they're, they're going to do quite well. And if somebody's terminally ill or very severely frail, then there's a lot of communication issues. But medically speaking, it's often not that complicated knowing what's the right thing to do. The more difficulty is in the middle zone, but also recognising that even mild frailty is quite a severe deficit on somebody. So mild frailty, you need help with housework, you need help with medications, maybe you need a bit of help with cooking your house isn't going so well, that can't sound so severe, but to get into that sort of state usually means that you lack reserve. You're doing fine day to day, but a small thing can make a big difference, as we were saying. And it's been extremely helpful, obviously, in a recent outbreak that we've all been dealing with in in, in great detail, really, just to get an idea relatively quickly, who is likely to have the physiological reserve to go through the very intensive interventions for, for, for what was COVID. Coming back to medication just for a wee second, it helps medication as well because if you're frail, that means that your window of risk and benefit for medications is much narrower. So again, mild side effects in somebody who's non-frail could be major in the very frail, and we'll talk about that a bit more. That's a really nice way to start this conversation, Dr. Wilson, because what I really wanted to do is try and help our listeners think about this. As you, as you know, um, those of us who work in the acute medical receiving unit will be assessing patients of all degrees of frailty as, as what you've described. And it's really nice just to talk about frailty versus patient age uh, in, in terms of physiology, but chronological age as well, and how that incorporates into their context of their illness, such as the patient that comes in with a urinary tract infection. And I guess what I was just wondering if we could talk about is just to, to elaborate on that, and that would lead us into discussion about patients that we see in the front door before we talk about polypharmacy. Yeah, so when you're seeing people at the front door, I've got a line that you'll remember from Bustoy is that functional history is as important as past medical history. And that being one thing that, that has improved greatly in the last couple of years is that we're quite good at getting medical history and medical results and you know observations and all these sorts of things. But, but until the last couple of years, really, we've maybe not been so good at getting somebody's functional history. And actually, I find that their functional history is more often than not what leads to getting the right answer. Also, it helps families getting people to the right answer as well. So to get somebody's functional history, you need to speak to them, but you very frequently need to speak to somebody else. Partly because people on their own are often not very good at giving a decent functional assessment of themselves because you don't really think about life that way. Whereas somebody that's living with somebody or caring for them or a family, they tend to be better at working out where the gaps are. And I've often had situations where I've been asking the functional questions, you know, what do they need help with and do they need this and do that, the next thing. And you can almost hear the penny dropping with the family that maybe slowly but surely this individual has been getting more and more support over the years. But it's not happened rapidly, so people don't notice. And that, I think, can be extremely helpful when it comes to the next conversation, which is very often at the front door, just what are we going to do about this illness, which is one conversation. And then the next thing is, what are we going to do if what we try and do for this illness isn't going to work? So straightforward example, somebody comes in with an infection, 
fluids and antibiotics, lots of people get better. The, the question there being, well, what happens if they're not getting better with the fluids and antibiotics? Just how far are we going to go? And that functional background can give you a very good idea of whether they've got the reserve to go into things more. And taking that history from the family and or, or their carers can be a very good way of them coming to that sort of understanding at the same time as you do. Yeah, I think the collateral history is such a key part of our history taking. And I guess it's it's more difficult to do that now when relatives aren't able to come into the acute medical admissions unit or may not be able to visit the hospital during the pandemic. Um, and these conversations are often happening over the uh, telephone. Um, I was just wondering if, if there are any key aspects of the history taking and assessing frailty and, and functional reserve you would like to highlight to our listeners, Dr Wilson? So th- taking these things over the phone is brutal. And, and I'm sure there's other podcasts and I've heard talks here about just how difficult it is to do all the breaking bad news down the phone and keep people up to date and so on. But so the core things are how they cope with the very essential dactyls of daily living. Can they wash themselves, dress themselves? Can they cook for themselves or do they need help with that? Are they eating well enough? How do they get their shopping? And how do they cope with their domestic tasks? Those sorts of things give you a feel for it. Because families will quite often say, oh, they're managing independently. But then you find out, well, actually, they never go to the shops because their daughter does that for them. And then they leave them something to heat up. And actually, they're getting all their washing done and their house is getting tidied for them. And why is that happening? It's not because they're lazy. It's because they're just not as able to do that anymore. And and those are the sort of key things that I would ask. On top of the, again, it's not, it doesn't really go with the frailty score, but although although dementia things comes into it, I would always ask a question about cognition. How's their memory these days? Some sort of prompting questions about their memory. And are they more confused than normal? And those sorts of things give a benchmark. Also, families are quite good at answering these questions. Whereas I've kind of gone off asking families questions about their medical history, because most of the time I can get their medical history much more accurately from Care Portal or SkyStore, whatever it is you're using. And asking the family to remember all of that isn't a particularly good use of time, but asking them to paint a picture of how their relative gets on is much better. So those would be my key thoughts. I guess that's um, really important when we're assessing these patients who may come in with delirium, for example, and they may not be able to give history about their functional status as well as their relatives and it brings to mind a patient that I saw recently just in acute medical readmissions who was in his late 70s who had a delirium from a presumed urinary tract infection and going through his drug history was very difficult as you would imagine um, as he didn't have any medicines with him no to set box and um, leading into the polypharmacy that we're talking about and um, that makes it more difficult to assess their polypharmacy other than going through medical records. And I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that before we, we talk about that a bit more. Yes, first off, delirium is massive. And, and it's one of the things that the collateral history is good. So uh, again, just, just going through the basics that we're all aware. So people come into hospital confused. It's important to work out, is this an acute confusion, a chronic confusion, or an acute on chronic confusion? Because if it's a chronic confusion, then actually they're always pretty confused and dementia probably. And they're in hospital and they're knocked off by the environment. That's one thing. If they've got dementia that's not normally so bad and it's a bit worse now because they've got an acute illness, that's another thing. The group that, that really are worth a lot of attention are people who are genuinely acutely confused. Somebody who was not confused and was managing fine and has now fallen apart and is very confused indeed. And that's your classic delirium. And they often have quite a much bigger physiological insult than you think. And the other thing on top of that is it's such an absolute catastrophe for the family. So they have a relative who can communicate fine, can chat to them on the phone, everything's all, all right. And then all of a sudden, it's like they've been possessed by somebody else. And you can understand how people in previous generations believed in demon possession, you know, and there's stuff from the dark ages and things like that, the medieval times about 
people who clearly, when you look at the records, had delirium and were thought to be possessed, it can be as dramatic as that to keep the family on board. So yeah, getting that history and then going through all the things you do with delirium, your time bundle and trying to work out what the cause of it is. But regarding medication, it'd be good to get into this. The first thing to do, I find, if I get a delirious adult with medication, just looking at that element is I find out if they had anything new. And emergency care summaries are quite good at this and GP summaries are quite good as well. Has a new medication been added? If a new medication has been added, I get extremely suspicious about that medication, no matter what it is, because people's responses to medications can be very challenging. In your experience, what what are those culprit medications, the ones that we really should be looking out for and raising the alarm bells about new confusion? So top class of drugs are anything that crosses the blood-brain barrier, right? Your blood-brain barrier is extremely effective and it keeps your brain healthy and happy. And we get very relaxed about many of our drugs happily going across your blood-brain barrier, which we've evolved or however you want to, um, however you want to do it, designed or whatever, um, to, to get across. So if you've got drugs that cross that and go into your brain, you've got to be really cautious about those. And the great variation in how people um, respond to these tablets. So obviously you'll get one lady, so we'll have two Mrs. Joneses in each and at their own parallel universe, right? And one Mrs. Jones can cope with modified release tramadol, 200 milligrams twice a day and 50 as required through the day. And she can get her little shopping trolley and get up and down a mile, a mile downhill and a mile uphill to the shop every day and she's not up and down. And then in an alternate universe, I have exactly the same Mrs. Jones, who looks the same, who's got the same past medical history, but her brain is set up slightly differently. And you give her one tramadol 50 tablet and she's away with the bees. And that can be true for any of the drugs that cross your blood-brain barrier. Tramadols, codeines, the GABA drugs, gabapentin, pregabalin. Again, you meet many people who can put up with staggering doses of these drugs and then other people who, who get knocked off fairly quickly. And it's not just those drugs. I've had people that have been knocked off by um, cough mixtures that have got amphetamines and things in them and uh, caffeine beast things and decongestants to get people to get a buzz off that. And then you're going down to your more famous class of drugs, your anticholinergics, drugs that are treated for itch or your cytirazines and piritins and things like that as well. And your drugs with anticholinergic weighting. These are the key culprits. To add to that, if you've got delirium, it is very likely that your blood-brain barrier is in an even worse state than it was prior to you being delirious. So these drugs that are crossing your brain are likely to be even more effective at blocking important things in your brain than they were when you didn't have delirium. And that's probably a bit of an issue with ill health in general. So those are the ones that I'm particularly cautious about and, and the keenest to get rid of if I, if I possibly can. I guess from, from what you're saying, it's also really important that we're thinking about not just our, our detective skills in new polypharmacy or new mm-hmm. appropriate or inappropriate polypharmacy, but also the importance of asking about non-prescribed medicines over the counter or herbal remedies or things that patients may not perceive to be prescribed or uh, medications that they would even think about mentioning. Was there anything in, in particular? As time goes on, more and more medications are available over the counter. And there's just a steady drift. Not, it's not fast. Medication is pretty well controlled in, in, in the UK. And, and, and you know, we've got um, pharmacy prescribed only medications, which is another safety net. But yeah, you, you, know, you know, just to mention the decongestant things there as well. You know, some of those are quite heavily marketed in the telly. And on top of that, everything about the media and the health service these days is encouraging people to self-manage. So they may well be trying to self, do the right thing and self-manage and take medications. 
that they don't know I had one this week and it wasn't anything particularly severe but somebody taking Panadol extra rather than Panadol and it was a Parkinson's patient I just knocked them off completely for a day it was something as simple as that and, and again when I'm dealing with patients and outpatients I do kind of warn them about that I think one of the slight safety nets for the frail elderly we've got in this country is free prescriptions and that that slightly encourages people to get medications from doctors because they're free rather than going from the pharmacy. It's not a full safety net, but it does it does help a little bit as well. And you're right, herbal many remedies can do just anything you want them to. And remembering to ask about that is very important. I was wondering if you could talk about the polypharmacy that we see through our age group. And I, I refer to one of the talks that I've seen you give, and it was a histogram through the decades of life where your number of comorbidities that you have and the number of medications that you take as, as your age increases and how that affects polypharmacy. So I'll try and paint a picture on this as well. So um, th- just to go over the superficial thing and then sort of look a little bit more deeply. So if you're over 65 in Scotland, the majority of people will have two or more long-term conditions. And if you're over the age of 75, the majority of people have three or more long-term conditions. In fact, it's more common in Scotland to have two or more conditions than to just have a single one. So comorbidities tend to cluster. There's not a lot of people out there with just single problems. Um, and actually, that's a challenge for the health service in general. That's why generalism is so important at the front door and in primary care. <clears throat> and even in specialties themselves, people idea of generalism. However, just looking at by age takes away a really important element. So deprivation has a massive job to play in this. So if you are in a more deprived postcode compared to a less deprived postcode, the same curve occurs with increasing polypharmacy and increasing multimorbidity as age goes on, but it occurs earlier and that can be 10 and as much as 20 years earlier. The multimorbidity starts, but also the polypharmacy starts as well. So in certain postcodes in Scotland, you'll have people with rates of polypharmacy that you would, in 50-year-olds, people in their 50s, that you wouldn't be expecting to see until people were in their 80s and postcodes that are maybe just around the corner. And that's really important. So although we're talking about frailty here, it does make it different. So, so if you listen to this podcast and either your emergency admission unit or your general practice deals with one of the more deprived postcodes, you'll be dealing with some of the issues I'm talking about here, but in people who are in their 50s, and that's very different because people in their 50s and they've got four, four conditions, say, and they're on 12 different medications. They've got a very different set of life problems than a person in their 80s does. If they're in their 50s, they're probably still trying to work and get part-time jobs. They might well be a carer for an older relative themselves. They might well have, you know, children that are still not independent on their own as yet. And that's challenging. And also potentially have an expectation of a lot more life years. So from that group, it might not be necessarily, you know, that perhaps what they need, you need to be careful what medications are on. Some might need to be stopped, but there a lot of support might be needed that they're taking their medications correctly so they can get benefit from them for the decade or so they need to take them to have benefit. Whereas with an 85-year-old with a more limited life expectancy that perhaps medication can stop a bit more harshly. But anytime I'm talking about these graphs, yeah, age is important. But certainly, I was going to say in Scotland, but actually it's true across the whole world that deprivation is the big marker as well. And so does polypharmacy have any influence on expected life expectancy within our deprivation scales or centiles of deprivation? I don't think we've done that. I don't think we've looked at that as an independent variable. But deprivation on its own is an independent variable. So if you're looking at risks of admission, readmission, morbidity, mortality, so the top three things are 
living in a deprived postcode, having multimorbidity and having a mental health co-diagnosis. Those are the top three things that are really bad news regarding excess use of your accident and emergency medical receiving unit, early death and so on. And it's a, it's a bigger factor than age. So age on its own isn't isn't as interesting as those three. And hence you get your, your Monroe bagging 90 year olds. And you, you know, who never darken a hospital. <clears throat> and on the other hand, you get some very unfortunate people in their forties with lots of conditions who never seem to be away from it. Well, I was wondering if we could shift focus now and think about the concept of of deprescribing, what that is, and also put it into the context of the concept of the uh, numbers needed to treat terminology um, for our listeners. So I think it's reasonable to come to that now. So, so, so just to be clear, so we've covered some other things just briefly in the past. So, so deprescribing is part of things, but not everything. But it's reasonable to get it's reasonable to get into that now. So the first thing with deprescribing is to really have quite a good grasp of what medications are sort of the highest risk for people regarding adverse side effects. And if people are on these medications, if they're particularly if they're frail and they're on a lot of medications, to be really sure that the indication is solid and necessary. And probably in this case, start with what some of the hardest medications are. And I'm afraid to say that some of the the most disturbing medications are actually some of the medications that are the most difficult to stop. And that's things like your night sedation, your sedative drugs, your big doses of painkillers, which are potentially not working because things are not always opiate responsive, your neuropathic agents, your gabapentins, your pregabalins that are often given out of desperation. So they're great, not great, but they're reasonable to give for neuropathic pain. But a lot of times people end up them for not neuropathic pain, but because the pain is difficult to manage and things like your antihistamines and so on. And some of the bladder drugs like solifenicin and oxybutynin. And those are ones that you need to be really clear. They're for symptomatic benefit, but they've got quite a high side effect profile going along with them. So if you've got people who've got polypharmacy on these medications, you need to be really clear with that individual that that is actually genuinely needed in that individual. And that would be the first group I would look at regarding deprescribing. The next group is potentially in some ways easier, and that's this business of over-treatment. So people get older and people get frailer and they change physiologically and their pharmacokinetics change. And the dose of a drug that you give someone in their 80s is realistically not going to be the same as you give that same adult in their 50s. And physiological changes occur as well. So blood pressure often goes down. Sometimes it doesn't, but, but it's remarkable how often people's blood pressure goes down when they're frail. And just make sure that, yep, they've got hypertension. Yep, they've got diabetes. Yep, they've got an indication for a blood thinner, but maybe not as much as they used to. So if I've got a frail adult and their blood pressure is less than 130 and they're on blood pressure drugs, I'll be thinking very, very seriously about reducing those. I think that comment needs a safety net, though, and it's about what the indication for the drug is. So with ACE inhibitors, for instance, they can be given for hypertension, but you need to be careful that they're not being given for left ventricular systolic dysfunction. Because in left ventricular systolic dysfunction, you're giving them an ACE inhibitor and you're not, the target there is not to lower their blood pressure. The target is to help with their angiotensin converting you know, enzyme inhibition and their total peripheral resistance and all these things that make your heart a little bit better. And actually a low blood pressure there can be fine. But if it's just for blood pressure reduction, then you maybe don't need to go as low as that. And to be cautious now that there's more and more concern about low diastolic blood pressures in frail adults. So this business that your blood vessels get stiff 
and therefore you don't quite have the muscular tone, so you can't keep your blood pressure up as well in diastole. And increasing evidence that, in, that low diastolic blood pressure increases mortality. And that's not just due to falls, because that, that it's, it's due to you know, dying of lots of different potential causes. The next one to look at over treatment is, um, is, is your pulse too low? Maybe you got started in a beta blocker when you were a stressed 50-year-old, and now you're an unstressed 90-year-old. And if pulses are starting to get below 60, then you might want to reduce that. And then your blood sugars, how low do you need to go? So lowering blood sugars good, improves microvascular outcomes, but it's a slow and long burn. And again, there's a drive in diabetes and everywhere to have person-specific targets. So your HPV on surrogate for a 20-year-old who you're hoping is going to live for another 60 or 70 years, and that's the length of time you've got to get benefit medication, will not be the same as your average 80-year-old who might have five to seven years to live or maybe two years to live if they're frailer. And starting to think about, you know, an H1C of 60. And if you're going below that, maybe they're getting too much of a good thing. And the last group just in this thing, which is, is one of my favourite ones, which is blood thinners. Every year that goes by, we get more and more enthusiastic about thinning people's blood and thinning old people's blood. And that's okay. But be really cautious at having people on more than one blood thinner. And it's so easy to happen by accident. You're on aspirin or you're on clopidogrel. And then you develop an indication for an, an oral anticoagulant, maybe atrial fibrillation, and you end up on an oral anticoagulant and an antiplatelet. And every observational study out there is clear that when you start combining these agents, the bleeding risk goes up year after year. So if you're going to thin an old person's blood, one drug is enough. I think it's really useful to get that, that helpful reminder about our awareness for adverse events and assessing bleeding risk and making sure that we're not pushing the physiological reserve of our patients. Uh, one of the things that I've been very lucky to do is electronic prescribing as it's come into our health boards just recently this year. And it does have prompts uh, flagging up things such as interactions with antiplatelets and anticoagulants. And I guess that's something that is a, is a safety net. I was wondering if you had any experience with that. So electronic prescribing, no, we don't have that as yet. I still have the joy, which is quite a joy sometimes of going around written cardexes with my black pen scoring out, <laughs> um, scoring out drugs a go go. Um, but yeah, with the blood thinners, I think one other thing I would add in with the blood thinners in hospital, and you've mentioned delirium earlier on, and I, I have a little thing about whether we should be giving every delirious person out there DVT prophylaxis or not, and that. That's something that I think needs serious thought. So DVT prophylaxis is effective, but it's a very high NNT treatment. So you're treating oh, 100, 200 people to try and get your drop in one non-fatal PE or DVT and trying to reduce fatal events is even higher. And I sometimes wonder about my active delirious person who I'm trying to get to sleep at night and is maybe wondering about more than they should and certainly quite an active individual about, do I really want a nurse giving them a painful injection once a day? And, you know, I just sometimes wonder whether that's over-enthusiasm and I will often stop DVT prophylaxis in delirious adults, partly because they're moving about plenty, also because there's no evidence about whether it does anything in delirious adults, and also because the risk of that medication is not small. If you're trying to get somebody to settle into what is a hostile environment, I think the last thing you want to do is be giving them anything that's jaggy uh, unless you really have to. I guess what I was really hoping to lead on to from that was how polypharmacy interacts with our patients and how that can affect their falls risk and just something to be mindful when we're prescribing yeah, it. So, so, so taking that back, and that takes us back to the drugs that cross your blood-brain barrier. So, so we're quite good at spotting when people's blood pressures are too low. So if your blood pressure is too low and you've got a partial blood pressure drop um, and you're falling, 
just about everybody will think to reduce blood pressure medication. And actually, that's relatively easy to do. You just take the dose down and that's fine. And if you're pulse is too low you know if your pulse is less than 60 in a beta blocker people will think about reducing those medications or if you're falling all the time and you're on i don't know rivaroxman and aspirin clopidogrel and whatever else somebody will maybe think about that but the ones that we really need to concentrate ones are the hard ones it's being quite firm about night sedation in hospital that it really does increase falls risk but people like it people people enjoy it and the bladder drugs and the stronger painkillers and your pregabalins and your gabapentins that those are hard to stop partly because patients like them but also because you've got to titrate them down and those are the ones that, that are the real big hitters when it comes to sedation i mean you think it falls i mean you think about that it's logical so falls several things have got to happen for you to fall over so obviously there's a loss of balance and things that affect your brain affect your balance but they also affect your judgment and Many of us have listened to this podcast, myself included, have fallen over. And the question is, why did you fall over on that day and not another day? And often it's because your balance was overwhelmed, but your cognition was overwhelmed as well. You did a stupid thing. So I've fallen off my bike and fallen on black ice and for very stupid reasons. And all these things that sedate you a little bit, your judgment's not quite so good. So you're more likely to do a stupid thing, whether that be trying to get to the toilet without your zimmer or take a step with humor. By the way, I don't tell patients they've done stupid things when they fall over. It's just it's just a simple way of transmitting this. Of course. So, I mean, I guess um, what we've discussed so far, we've not covered the patient's perspective. And I guess what I'd like to just pick your brains on, Dr. Wilson, is how you explain to our patients when we are de-prescribing or stopping medication, how, how do we portray that message to our patient um, and take into account their ideas, their concerns, and their expectations about their medication that they might have been taking for years and years? I think some of that comes from our general approach to the patient. So so with this podcast, there will be various links and one will be to the polypharmacy guideline that, that Scotland has been running for a few years now. I think one of the important things about that is that it does give a drug review process and we've skirted through some of these things today. And the very first step in that drug review process is what matters to the patient. So before you get to drug review, you want to have some idea of the patient's perspective as far as you can get it. Now, we talked already about the delirious adult here and trying to get their perspective is is, is a bit difficult. But if it's not the case, a little bit of time just working out what their priorities are is by far the most helpful thing to do to frame your drug review process. And often their answers and views will not be framed in terms of medicine. So it's unlikely, sometimes it will be, but it's unlikely to be, I want my blood pressure to be to target. I want my blood sugar to be to target. It will be, I want to get home. I want to walk a bit better. I don't want to feel so muggy headed. You know, it will be targets like that. I want to remain in the house. I want to do this, that, and the next thing. And whatever that is can help frame the rest of it. And again, so when you're coming to things that are trying to stop sedative drugs and things like this, well, so, so for instance, say the patient says, well, you're worried about falls or you're worried about managing your own home. Well, actually, this drug, although it feels quite nice, that is not helping you get that target because it's making you more likely to fall over. So that when you're making your drug changes, you're, you're bringing it back to what the patient brings to the table is what they want. And, and that can be that can obviously be very difficult in the acute zone because in the acute zone, often their immediate target is not to die, <laughs> and and that's okay because and then all the drug changes are on that basis. You know, you're going to stop medication so you don't bleed to death, or your blood pressure is too low and give you antibiotics. But in the colder light of day type reviews, that I think is the important, uh, the most important way to start it. It doesn't necessarily take too long, but just just to get a wee idea of where they're coming from. That's a really useful thought to to leave with, and I guess we've just. Just sort of um, trying to summarise now, Dr. Wilson, we've, we've touched on really the, the geriatric giants. We've touched on delirium, we've touched on frailty, polypharmacy, falls, 
and realistic medicine. And I guess just wondering if you could just summarise and, and give the listeners some just some take-home messages, some key points, uh, just as we wrap up this episode of Clinical Conversations. So I think you're quite, you've picked that up quite nicely. So, so polypharmacy is effectively a Trojan horse for a lot of geriatric concepts, which aren't really geriatric concepts, they're just general medical concepts. The idea that you should start every review with an idea of what the patient's goals are and the goals are for that individual patient, rather than what the goals are for their individual conditions and take it from there. We focus quite a lot here on harmful medications, but I would also put a word in about ensuring people take compliance of the essential medications they take. But just to come back to the, the deprescribing element, if I was trying to give people just a quick way to run around overtreatment, I would be trying to get people to concentrate on these points. Is your blood pressure too low? Is your blood sugar too low? Is your blood too thin? Are your kidneys too vulnerable? And is your pulse too low? And that being one group of over treatments. And the other one is, are you on any messy drugs, drugs that interfere with your brain that shouldn't? And those are the target, those are the main targets to go for. That is sound advice. Perfect way to finish. Again, thank you so much for, for joining thank me. And thank you for asking me. I hope that uh, you enjoyed it as much as I did. And I hope that our listeners do too. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you.